Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing the film Amadeus, the fanfic String Theory by Toft, and Rika Aoki's Light from Uncommon Stars. Hello and welcome to episode 97, A Symphony of Serpents. I am Alex and I play like a little bit of guitar and an even smaller amount of mountain dulcimer. Look, don't ask me questions. It was an impulse pandemic purchase. (laughs) I'm Freya and I'm a chorister who had a brief childhood flirtation with the euphonium. (laughs) Mm. I I, I need video. Um, I'm Macy. And I play piano and orchestral clarinet, including E-flat and bass, and I'm a chorister alto one. I play a little bit of guitar, some recorder, <laughs> and recently okay, then. harp. <laughs> recently harp, yes. Oh, yeah, recently harp. Lately. Well, am I allowed to backtrack and say that I'm a soprano too? That's acceptable. That's allowed. We, we're, we're all right with the sop twos. They're not I quite... think I'm a mezzo-soprano. That's, well, a, that's range, a voice not type, a part. Not a, not a part. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've never been in a choir. You would so you probably be sop be a two too. or alto one, mm-hmm. depending mm-hmm. on your preference um, between harmony and melody, generally. Freya, what are we? Oh, yeah. We are three redheaded <laughs> fantasy authors. And today, if we can manage to get past one of the more gremlin openings of our uh, four-year run, we might be talking about music today. We'll see how that goes. Um, But before, and like music in in fiction and so forth, the madness of creating art. Um, But before we get into all of that, fellow serpents, what have we been reading lately? Continuing my romance novel streak, I read a very thematically appropriate romance novel, The Hellion's Waltz by... Olivia Waite. Uh, mm. This is the third of her Feminine Pursuits FF Regency romances, and this one, one of the protagonists is a pianist and piano tuner, uh, because her father makes pianos and her family owns a musical instruments shop. And the other main character is a silk weaver, and the entire book is a leverage con. <laughs> we love that! Yeah, if that what sounds like they, something you would be into... Heisting? Uh, they are trying to get money out of a terrible man who has okay. yep. made life yep. that awful for the women workers of the village. Okay. Is this uh, FF or uh, yes, MF? Yes, it's FF. Okay. It's the one okay, after cool. the bees one, right? Correct. Yes, it starts with the astronomy one, and then there's the bees one, and this is the music and fabric one. <laughs> Neat. We love so this. if that sounds like something you'd like, you will enjoy this. It's very sweet. The romance is lovely, and it's all about finding someone who helps you believe in yourself. Historical lesbians with jobs. Yes, yes. It is quite nice to see people with jobs in romances, she says, writing books about people (laughs) without jobs. Um, The other romance that I read is The New Cat Sebastian. So this is an MM MM historical set in the 1960s. Hmm. And it is a road trip romance about a very prickly, grumpy man and a sunshine man with terrible self-esteem who end up road tripping from Massachusetts all the way to California uh, after they both graduate from university. And along the way, they get to know each other and snipe a lot and share beds and motel rooms and do sightseeing and fall in love. It's very low plot, very low angst, but it's got some really lovely character work. I loved the romance dynamic in that one. And on a non-romance note, I also read a book that had been sitting on my shelf for quite a while. I think it came out at the very, very beginning of this mm-hmm. year, or even last year. It was, it was a last pandemic year, I think. release because it kind of sort of yeah. got swallowed. Um, but it's The Angel of the Crows by Catherine Addison. So this is Catherine Addison of the Goblin Emperor. Yes, fame. beloved. And this is a completely different book. Uh, <laughs> it definitely has some of the same kind of styles of character interactions in it. Uh, this book began its life as Sherlock Wingfic. There is an afterword which explains to the population what Wingfic is. And Wonderful. That this began as Sherlock Wingfic, and there's pretty much everything you need to know about it. It's very yeah. much Sherlock Holmes fan fiction in which mm. the Sherlock character is an angel. But I love the world building in this so much. This idea that angels 
have are given names and meanings by the parts of the world they have dominion over. So mm. there's like the angel of, you know, King's Cross Station and the angel of this oh, like principalities. Tiny- yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's like this angel of this tiny pub, uh, and if you're the place that you are having dominion over gets destroyed, you lose your name and you become a nameless angel who loses all their personality and memory. Mm, and cool. Sherlock introduces himself, or the character's called Crow, introduces himself to the Watson character, who is called Doyle, just confusingly, <laughs> as I am the angel of London, which is not a thing. There is no angel no, yeah. of London. But they move in together and become buddies and go around solving crime. So it touches on a lot of the classic Sherlock Holmes stories from the Arthur Conan Doyle books. Mm-hmm. But I had a really great time with this. I mean, a mood for whodunits. I loved all the nods to classic Sherlock and mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes books. Mm-hmm. And I just I just wanted to live in this world forever. I think Catherine Addison's world building gift is so good. Yeah, I have such a fondness and like nostalgia for Wingfic from the time that I spent um, some of my um, misspent youth in the Good Omens fandom as a as a teenager. Mm. This does not take it in a sexy direction; like it does not turn into sexy. Oh, what a shame! (laughs) I know, such a shame. Uh, (laughs) But still, really enjoyable. I'm glad I finally picked it up. I actually dropped a Wingfic into last month's Patreon Rex. Uh, oh. In fact, which was Sam Wilson wing thick, in which he literally has wings, Hollow mm-hmm. and Honeycomb by Anastar E. Very good. Very that's good. A good. That's a good thematic use of wing thick. Isn't it? Se- mm. By it the is. way, dear listeners, if you want more fanfic wrecks <laughs> by Macy, consider supporting us on Patreon <laughs> for the last, like, on. what, month? We'll be closing it down at the end of the year for obvious reasons, uh, yes. but there's a backlog, so if you sign in yeah. now, you can go Pay be for a in, month. Like, three years. Copy and save the entire backlog of Macy's amazing fanfic Rex. There's just so many of them. There's so many words, y'all. So many words. Anyway, we were doing an episode. Shall we continue? Macy, what have you been reading? What has Macy been... I've read books, you guys. Congratulations. We love Um, this I read two books that were not our tentpole um, in the past two weeks. And the first one was a non-fiction by M.T. Anderson called Symphony for the City of the Dead which is a non-fiction about Shostakovich and his life under the post-World War I early Russian communist regime and then all the way through World War II because he was from the city of Leningrad, which of course um, underwent a horrific siege during the beginning uh, three, four years of World War II and people were starving to death. Um, and that whole time he was busily composing what became the Leningrad Symphony, which was a huge tool for propaganda and for bringing people around the idea of supporting Russia, who used to be their enemies. So just right. some cheerful light bedtime reading. Yeah, some che- well, it was fascinating, particularly some of the stuff around artists under an oppressive regime who might declare you to be subversive at any time. Mm. Right. Um, So very interesting stuff around what it meant to be a musician and how could music, which has no words to it, be viewed as treacherous to the state. Mm. Um, So fascinating Fascinating. stuff, but not light. You are right. But very, very readable book. Um, Not at all a history text. It was very much telling it as a story. Mm. Um, And, you know, complete with midnight escapes over frozen tundra and like over a lake that would only let you through at certain times of year. I think that's just what happens in Russia. That's just how (laughs) Russia is. Like, what are you going to do about it? Uh, What else? I also read a book called The Dawn Hounds by Sasha Stronach, which I came across in the aftermath of the New Zealand Worldcon. Because this was one of the ones that was really talked about as exemplary of modern New Zealand uh, fantasy writing. And it was a fascinating, strange, very, very queer novel um, about a city that is sort of overtaken by mushroom technology and a young woman who becomes a police officer to try to save the other street rats like herself, but comes to realise that she's part of a she's complicit in a corrupt system and ends up fighting back, uh, complete with like immortal gods and like the instruments of gods who die again and again and get resurrected. Um, there's a very like um, who's the lover from um, the immortality movie uh, who's underwater and dies again and again and again. Coin? Oh, Quinn. Quinn, something like that. Yeah. From the um, Charlize Theron, the 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 old, old guy. There we go. Yeah, Quinn. 
Yeah. Yes, Quinn. Uh, so there's there's one of them ends up in a situation like that, for example. Um, so lots of really kind of horror-y and weird and cool stuff. And then I read a novel-length Naruto self-insert fanfic. Um, oh, interesting. Back to, back to my roots called Compass of Thy Soul by Umei no Mai. And I bring this one up because you could see it as that. Or you could see it as a historical Japanese warring states period novel about silk weaving and politics. Okay. Okay. And so it has tons and tons of really intricate detail around like the home crafts needed to maintain a household and grow and sell silk and fabric in that period. Mm. And so absolutely fascinating fic. Um, very little Naruto knowledge needed. And that's what I've been reading. Very cool. Um, I have been continuing my big quilt project, so mm. more podcasts. Um, I got all the way caught up with uh, Campaign Skyjacks, which oh, well breaks my heart. Breaks my heart, yeah. Um, it's just <laughs> make so more. easy to They'll listen make to. More. They'll make more, but it's every like every week or every other week. Um, but fortunately, they do have a spinoff uh, hmm. series, which is more like YA it's about like this group of teenagers who get jobs on an airship for the first time they're mail couriers um cute which is very cool and it's called Skyjack's Courier's Call uh it's really adorable and really sweet and it's kid friendly so if you know any kids who are into podcasts maybe recommend that one to them um I also watched a comedy show on Netflix Hannah Gadsby's Douglas which was Mm. very funny Mm. and which made me super happy because for the first time in my life I got to be included as a non-binary person in that joke where, like, the communion will be like, the men in the audience will be feeling this way, and the women in the audience will be thinking this. And then she followed it with, and the, non- the non-binary people in the audience will blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, cool! <laughs> Inclusion! Uh, so that was, that was very, very happy. Uh, I started watching another TV show called The Wilds, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's basically, like, you know Lost, where they get... Mm -hmm. I've never seen Lost, but I know about Lost. (laughs) Right, because Um, GIFs on Tumblr happen. GIFs on Tumblr happen, exactly. So it's about a group of teenage girls who... Uh, their plane crashes and they get stranded on this desert island and Hmm. they have to like do stuff to survive and you find out in the first episode that that was on purpose and that they're there as kind of like a social experiment and they're being spied upon the whole time (laughs) and um, they're making some like not very smart survival decisions (laughs) So I'm like I'm a little bit critical of their ability to handle this. They keep building their camp on like below the high tide mark on the what? beach. Uh, I, I know, I know. Even and it, a city kid has to figure that one out after the first tide. Well, here's the thing. Apparently, the tide didn't come in until like day five. That's not how the fucking. Okay, so they like, moved to a different planet. <laughs> and like, like you can see, you can see. The sand that they're on is like low tide sand because yeah. it's hard and it's packed down and it's not dry. <laughs> and right? you've got a tide line above it. You've got a tide li- I'm just like, like there's nice clear <laughs> dunes right above them. Just like, mo- why not move the camp like 30 <laughs> feet that direction? I don't know. Anyway, well, that's anyway, the sort of The media thing. is giving you some emotions, even yeah. if the emotions yeah. are... It's frustrating. <laughs> Please and, look at the sand. And I do want to say like content warnings for like everything in the mm. show because it's pretty dark and hard to deal with like Mm. character death and mutilation and uh sexual assault and all things all the things um yes is this this an american show it is an american show it just came out on uh amazon prime recently i think Hmm. and finally i read a victoria goddard piece uh, a short story called in the company of gentlemen which is a outsider's perspective on one of the famous adventures of the uh, Red Company, who are traders and uh, sort of folk heroes and used to travel around singing revolutionary songs and pushing over cows, I guess, and getting in trouble. <laughs> Sounds very Lymond. It is very Lymond, actually. It's extremely Lymond. Um, yes. 
Also, now I want to see if you could ever get Lyman drunk enough to go cow tipping. Absolutely. <laughs> Although it would turn out that he has gotten drunk enough. He is not actually drunk. Everyone else is drunk. And the cow tipping is part of some kind of like large scheme, <laughs> scheme. which yeah. I am almost certain actually happens possibly in the same There was some book. sheep yeah. rustling book, that possibly. was secretly there's a way to sheep... defeat an army. Yes, there's sheep stuff. There's, there's uh, a cow Lyman. raid in the first book, I yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. anyway, we're 15 minutes through the episode, y'all. This is this is normal. This is our normal timestamp for is, how yeah. long it takes okay. us to get here. Okay, Freya, so, yeah. tell us things. Tell us things about angry composer gentlemen. All right. So moving into our episode on music. The first temple is a fanfic that is very close to my heart. I reread this and I thought, oh, I've reread this so many times over right. the years. And I read it at the very, very beginning of my getting into this fandom, which is Stargate Atlantis, when I went on a binge and read mm. huge amounts of Stargate Atlantis fanfic because mm. it was such a big fandom back in the day. There were heaps of people writing in it that I really liked their work. So this is String Theory, a concerto for violin in D minor by Toft. And this is a non-Stargate AU so it's a non, non-sci-fi AU of a sci-fi canon in which Rodney McKay, the cranky genius scientist, is instead a cranky genius conductor of orchestras and composer mm-hmm. who goes talent scouting an orchestra to look for someone who they're thinking of hiring and ends up instead seeing John Shepard, who is playing, <laughs> uh, was it second desk in the first violins? Uh, he was second seat in the first. Second seat in the, yeah, in the first. I can't remember what a desk is called. So he, he, has, to, he has to lead the orchestra if the first is off being a soloist. He's off doing basically. solos, yes. Uh, and he sees him instead and sees his potential and ends up saying, right, this is the person who is going to play the new violin concerto that I am composing. We have to get him as a soloist. Mm-hmm. And it's a relatively short story. It's about how they get John to come and play the concerto and they fall in love, but it's got a lot of things in it to do with uh, mental health and the role of music as a career to these Mm -hmm. people. And I think it is a really good translation of the canon personalities into that sphere. Right, because I think that one of the themes that early canon had that kind of maps to this is John Shepard as this person who was very constrained in a role that wasted him. Mm. Um, and that's definitely what this fic is doing this fic is saying you know um, violin as a concert instrument is a fascinatingly uniform thing to have to play if you as a violinist are having like artistic merit as an individual you've fucked up like your job is to sound exactly identical to everyone else in your section so that the section sounds loud enough because the violin's too quiet. Mm. Um, and John just isn't good at that. And they see him, uh, John, uh, like Rodney sees him in the very first scene playing violin and everyone's looking at him as like a little bit of a fuck up. He's technically good, but like he's clearly not interested. The conductor of that orchestra doesn't appreciate him. And then the second that he steps up to play a duet with the soloist where he gets to have his own voice, he shines. Mm. And I think we see this if John in canon is just terrible at military hierarchy. Yes, he's, but when he's you put very him in bad as the commander, <laughs> right? But when you suddenly you give him like charge of something and the ability to make his own decisions, he makes absolutely batshit nonsense ones, but they're amazing. Mm, and his value, at least at the beginning of the Stargate series, is that he has the right gene to be able to activate right. all this ancient technology. He's and, a battery, kind of. Yeah, and so there's this like untapped potential that he has that then allows him to step into this role. Uh, except in this story, the p- untapped potential that John has is in his ability to translate Rodney's mm. uh, music that he's written. Yes. Which is very nice. And it just has so much to say about orchestras, with a capital O, ah. <laughs> as hotbed of strange, genius, and irascible people. But yes... Musician is not just a job, but an identity I see here. Yes, I quite like that. I think that's something that we're going to see all through the temples in this episode. But, you know, this idea that it's something that everybody in this story thinks of themselves as a musician. It's not just their day job. It's what they think about when they go home. Mm -hmm. It's how they connect to other people. It's how they form interpersonal and romantic connections. Like there's something very romantic about Mm -hmm. the fact that Rodney sees in John the person who is going to translate this music that is expressing something that he is otherwise finding inexpressible. Like he's written this symphony, uh, this concerto about 
his own personal experiences because he can't put them into words. And then he Mm. trusts John to translate that fully. And then at the end of it, he says, I'm going to write you a symphony, which is like, in context, it's the I love you. Yeah. Of the story. And I think one of the things that really worked for me as well for translating this is um, composing, not always, but there's large pieces of composing that are basically maths. Mm. Right. Mm. It's, you know, which intervals are you using? What, 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 uh, how are you modulating this particular theme, the variations, all, all of this, so on and so forth. And the way that Rodney talks about composing in this work is very much like think of where you are in the universe what's the maths of it what are the patterns and how do the patterns interweave mm. in a very like mathematics sine curve kind of way and he's very aware that he is not good at the emotionality right he's not good at the passion so it's not just that he's trusting john to manifest what he's created it's that he's trusting john to kind of create these feelings that he wasn't able to mm. Right, because writing music, like writing sheet music on a book, doesn't intrinsically convey emotions. Like I can play you my favorite Tchaikovsky, and I can make it angry or I can make it sad, and you will hear the difference. Yeah, because it's different when you play it differently. Yeah, right? yeah. and John has that. Speaking of emotional musicians, so much emotion. <laughs> the next tentpole that we have uh, is the film Amadeus from when was this film? Nineteen eighty-six. Something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. I wasn't able to find the original. I had to watch the remastered version. I but... watched the director's cut, which was yeah, like two one. and a half hours long. Oh. Which was I, I don't actually know which version I watched. I was just like the one I have the DVD of. Why it is quite yep. long? Why? Why is it? There's just it so doesn't. much opera. So much like opera. They could have cut. They could have so cut much so much opera. <laughs> yeah, I definitely like towards the end. Like anytime there was opera on stage, I started like skipping past it. I was like, I don't care about this. I just um, took out a video game to play in those bits, but it's fine. There you go. It's very, anyway. it's very clearly that the director paid a lot to record those scenes with all of the extras and the costumes and everything. It's like mm. I'm so bloody putting them. it in. I'm putting it back the fuck in. Yeah, you can't yeah, for stop sure. me. Anyway, this film is about Mozart. <laughs> uh, well, technically, it's about it's about uh, Salieri. Uh, nobody cares who about was Salieri. His... Maisie, please. Um, oh, let me get through this. <laughs> uh, it's about uh, Salieri, who was Mozart's frenemy, I think, would probably be like the best yeah. word to describe it. <laughs> uh, and it's told it through this frame story where Salieri has like had this mental breakdown and tried to kill himself because like he has this guilt for quote unquote killing Mozart. He's like ranting and screaming about how he killed Mozart. Um and so he's taken to this uh hospital and a priest comes to like hear his confession and Salieri <laughs> kind of tells confesses to him the whole story of his entire lifelong relationship with with, with musical accompaniment with music this yeah. poor fucking priest <laughs> this poor priest um <laughs> having to listen to this guy and uh yeah and Salieri very much goes through this this kind of like arc of like this love-hate relationship with Mozart because he wants so badly for his music to like his own music to be like worshiping God and like having God speak through him Mm -hmm. and he can't quite manage to hit that that divine inspiration Mm -hmm. and Mozart comes along and just does it effortlessly uh and so Salieri very much like loves him and hates him for that and is jealous and also very glad that he's in the world making this beautiful music and Complicated, complicated professional feelings. I feel like I would tag this Salieri slash Mozart rivalry brackets unrequited. Yes. <laughs> yes. Correct. Yes. Because <laughs> Mozart's like, who? Him? Who? <laughs> oh, we're buddies, right? <laughs> also, Mozart is a fuckboy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Terrible human being. Yeah. Uh, but I think my favorite part is at the very beginning where Salieri's playing the priest, like his melodies, and the priest's like, hmm haven't heard that and then he plays this little bit of Mozart he's like oh yes I know that, like, one. that one was that you and he's like no it reminds me of the um the scene in Shakespeare in Love where at the auditions everybody's um using Marlowe yes. to audition <laughs> and Shakespeare's sitting there in this like enormous snit about it until finally somebody <laughs> comes in and says something from one of his plays yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's got that whole, you know, creative, you know, yes, I really admire you, but you have to be the one who's really well known. Like, yeah. I want to be blazoning my mark on the world and along comes you. 
you. There's also this really interesting like undertone because Salieri is super devout. Um, and so he's like, God, I've given you everything. I've been chased my entire life and I'm Italian. And so you know how much that hurts me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, got a, I got very curious about the history of this film and the like the play, the stage play that it was based mm-hmm. on and things and sort of went into a deep dive on Wikipedia about the background and the history that it's based on. And apparently, yeah, the, the play was like torn to shreds by mu- like actual music historians oh, who yeah. were affronted. They were like, there is no <laughs> evidence that they had a rivalry. Salieri was married and had like mistresses and many kids. And the guy's like, it's fiction. It's all completely fiction. It's, fiction. it's funny though. It, mm. uh... it's, it's very much about music and about being the person who wants to create music and the way politics works in small groups of musical mm. people. Oh, that's for real. The bit where um, Salieri is trying frantically to like stop Mozart from getting a particular student because she's a princess and then he'd be like well known. Yeah. And there's mm. all of these musicians like bad mouthing each other behind each other's backs and then saying nice things to their face. And I'm like, I see. You. And like a five minute argument about why or why not an opera should be in German. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. There's okay. There's there's some very funny lines too where like oh, everybody yeah. is telling Mozart like there's. We don't. We don't know why we don't like this. There's too many notes. That's the problem. <laughs> yes. There's too many notes. There's just too many notes. <laughs> yeah. Which it, okay, that's fair. Mozart does have a lot of notes. He does. Yeah. It it very much speaks to the like the trial of of being attacked by an editor or not even an editor, just someone who's giving you money who doesn't necessarily know things. Just yeah. just, yes, cut a, just cut a few and it'll be perfect. And I'm like, oh, that speaks to the writer in me. Yeah. Because <laughs> the funniest some. thing is the the emperor who has the most power and control of the flow of money thinks that he knows everything about music and is actually terrible yeah and it's the funniest thing yeah because it's so true so it's about yeah it's about that sort of like that patron relationship but it's also about the Mm. world of people producing opera and i think i wanted to go on a little diversion here that i Mm -hmm. of course in the course of preparing for this episode went away and read the two discworld books about music as well Mm. so i reread masquerade which is, of mm. course, Phantom of the Opera fan fiction. <laughs> but it's really about this idea of opera as this liminal space for the fantastical. Like mm. if there's mm. anywhere that music is going to slip in, it's in this place where everything is allowed to be larger than life and it's agreed upon that realism has no space. Yeah, right. And I think that one of the things that Amadeus does really well as a film is that it leans so hard into that. Like it lets the theatricality and larger than life and who cares what's real of opera bleed out into the entire movie the wigs the wigs yeah and just the fact that like you never are quite sure where performance starts and ends like there's so much musical performance in it there's um this real blurred line between what's diegetic music and what isn't like you know there's so much mozart music used in it (laughs) and sometimes it's just because someone is playing mozart's music in the scene but sometimes it's the mozart's music is being used to soundtrack whatever is going on in a very thematic way and it often blurs which is really effective and they they use large chunks of the of the requiem throughout the last half an Mm. hour of the film and it's supremely affecting because a big part of the late plot is basically that mozart is almost haunted and tormented by this piece because mozart never finished his requiem other people finished it for him but it's still one of one of the most um performed and, and adulated requiems um which uh you know, not to assume everyone has Catholic cultural background. So the the Requiem is a set of texts, a liturgy, basically, for, for the dying um, that many classical composers set to music in many different ways. Um, so, you know, there's the Fauré Requiem, there's the Mozart Requiem, um, and, and Mozart's is one of the best known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Freya, you've sung it. I've right? sung it quite a few times. I love mm-hmm. the Mozart Requiem. Every time so it appeared, good. I was like, oh, I can hear the second soprano part. And that and that scene, like the other really effective scene where Mozart is sort of almost exhausted to death and Salieri is mm-hmm. trying to get him to finish it because Salieri intends right. to claim it as his own work. And he's... And Which Mozart, is always a stupid plan. Oh, it's a bit stupid, yeah. But Mozart is just sitting there, like, clearly almost, you know completely ragged and yet his brain is still producing this music perfect on the first draft and Salieri is torn between this absolute adoration and anger and frustration as he's getting it down like he's taking taking the notation and Mozart's just sitting there going okay so this is what the basses do and then then, okay coming in here this is what and you're like watching that mind work even if it's a heightened version 
that wouldn't necessarily have been how it worked mm, right. in real life was so so good it was and especially that it was it was the confutatis the Mm. Oh, such a good choice for that because it has such big contrasts between the two. Anyway, yeah. But then, and then the next scene, you get to see like the the funeral carriage of Mozart, yes. and you hear that come together. This thing that you've just seen mm-hmm. being composed piecemeal, you suddenly get blasted with the entire effect of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a good film. It won a lot of Academy Awards, and I think they were well deserved. Yes, um, I I had some snark about the fact that the <laughs> yes, Mace, subtitles... Macy's subtitle snark. The subtitles, when we first go into the room at the asylum where Salieri is living, uh, as like, piano music. And I'm like, eh, that doesn't sound like piano. That's a plucked instrument. And then we zoom in on Salieri playing a harpsichord. You should write and a stern letter. not a piano. There's Dear a, editor, a pia- I have a complaint. But like pianoforte was like new and cool then. And like, anyway, it's fine. Everything's fine. You sit on a throne of lies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Macy, how about you tell us about the next tentpole to get yes. us away from this throne of lies? Sure, sure let's do that. Um, so the next tentpole is a book by Rika Aoki. And it is, her, I believe, her debut? Debut I novel. I so. Debut novel. I think there's She's been novellas or something. She's published poetry before. Many poems, I think this is her debut novel. But this is Light from Uncommon Stars, which is a, in which the Queen of Hell um, has to claim one more soul for the devil, one more violinist in order to reclaim her own music. And she has about one year left to do it. And she casts around and is dissatisfied with all of the violin prodigies that she comes across. Until in a park one day, she stumbles across a homeless, runaway, transgender girl called Katerina, who just wants to play video game music on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And Suzuki, the Queen of Hell, is immediately like, this one. I want this one. And her her, her adjudicant from hell, her devil friend, is like, but why? Shizuka. Her name is Shizuka. Shizuka. I think that's... You said Suzuki. Suzuki. Oh, no, that, because that's the, the, that's the brand of a piano. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there we go. That, I'm like, that's in my head. Yeah, so it's a thematically apt name. But... Yeah. There we go. Brain. Um, and there are a lot of other things that happen in this book, including an entire plot involving refugee aliens who have a donut shop. Yes. And <laughs> But there's just so much in here around music and the way in which, for some people... It's just something that kind of burns inside you that you have to do, Mm. that art is. And I think that a lot of our writer listeners have that same burn for writing. I think it's a thing across the arts, right? But it's something that really burns in Katerina, that she just knows that she needs this. Uh, And so she sacrifices many things and has uh, a lot of pain perhaps because of it. But in the end, because it's a book... She shows everyone that it was worthwhile. Mm, I think this, I, I really like that this has a lot to say about the pure desire to just produce music. Like C- Katrina mm-hmm. really wishes that she could just be her music and her music would right. be enough to get her the attention. It would speak to the people that she wants to speak to. Right. But she is hampered by the societal expectations of the pers- on the person producing the music yeah she is not feminine enough she's not the type of person that they want her to be she's, she's not, not playing the sort of music she's that not they producing the right produce. kind of yeah. music um and you know and it's all about her struggle to remain true to her desire to just produce the music that she wants because she knows it's going to speak to the people that she wants to reach yeah and i think some of the yeah. most effective writing in it is about how people feel when they are both playing and hearing music that is speaking to them as nothing else can yeah um, I, I do really want liked. to provide. I do want to provide a content warnings. Yeah, for uh, for this, there is some um, on the page sexual assault. There is some on the page, quite a lot of on the page uh, hate transphobia. D- transphobia. Um, uh, I think those are the two big ones. I would say child abuse. Child abuse, yes, um, and references to it, and yeah, a little homophobia. Little homophobia. Just. just for- flavor yeah yeah um, uh, but like all of the main characters are very warm and accepting and defensive of katarina and like they right. band together around her to like give her the space that she needs and the security and safety that she needs to be able to sort of blossom into the musician she's meant to be 
So right. it's very sweet. Hmm. And I liked I liked the contrast between Amadeus's unbearable Catholicism of Salieri <laughs> and his attempt to make a deal with God that he will right. be God's voice and he will produce this wondrous music in worship of God, you know, and he will be chased in return. Uh, that's contrasted here with this this very traditional idea of making a deal with the devil for musical genius, yeah. which is really <laughs> embedded <laughs> in sort of folklore and myth. And I, particularly the devil as a violinist. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like the whole devil went down to Georgia. Is, I was just about to say, is Macy going to give us Macy, a, a Macy has a, a corner wreck. If you like, there's a there's a, a short series called The Devil Went Down to Georgia brackets and then went down on Johnny. Um, hey. And, <laughs> hey. Uh, particularly, um, the the main fic is not finished, um, and I don't know if it will be. But there is a one shot that's finished called Bluegrass Covers of the Song of Solomon by Not Because of Victories. That's um, a great and that's name. Really well written. It's a great name. That's a really right? good name. It's very cool. But I also, in Light from Uncommon Stars, found it interesting how secular the devil was. Mm. Mm, like, there was yeah. absolutely zero implication that, like, because the devil exists, God exists. Yeah. Yeah, that's and true. And it, it, almost... it was very funny at the end. I Actually, I'm not going to spoil what happens at the end, but you know what I'm talking <laughs> it about. It was very funny. Yes, it was very funny. <laughs> the very funny. funny thing at the end, yes. I was like, what? What is happening? <laughs> Why is this happening? It was very good omensy. And the last thing I wanted to say is that this one of all of them also involves the creation of musical instruments. Mm. So there's a little bit yes. of a subplot based in a luthier shop about the creation of violins and altering or fixing violins. And there's so much thematic resonance with um, a lot of the, the queer and trans themes right. there about shifts and changes made to the body in order to give you the voice and the self that sounds the truest, that is the truest to your soul. And I think that um, specifically it being violin matters a lot here. Because mm. there's a point that they make in the book, which is that a hundred-year-old piano is a beater. Yeah. A hundred-year-old violin is just getting started. And it's not because, like, they have a shorter lifespan or anything in particular. It's like a piano gets worse with age, a violin improves. And I think that you mentioned, like, many episodes ago in a completely unrelated episode i don't even remember what it was about but you mentioned at some point that violin is the closest instrument to human singing human is that voice. right mm -hmm. yeah yeah it closest in timbre and range and and uh, and ra range of tone yeah. all of that mm. yes um absolutely mm. so i like that and episode. so it is frequently frequently the instrument that is used then to represent almost singing and that's definitely something that we see in light from uncommon stars is that it's talked about explicitly as katrina finding her voice right mm. but also even the person who's working on it has the same obsession with mm -hmm. getting things right that all the other all the musicians <laughs> do yeah wonderful so um a a trope that is quite common in fiction about musicians. I think I've seen this trope more reference to musicians than I have for any other artist. And I wonder if you guys have theories as to why, but it's that trope of art as madness and suffering. How like you can't make beautiful lasting art without destroying something of yourself or paying a horrible price for it, etc, etc. Thoughts? I would argue ballet. I would okay, argue I've seen the it, movie The Black Swan. I've seen it a little bit with ballet as well. Yes, there's um, a, a uh, YA book that I read when I was a child called Aria of the Sea, which was very much that. But also like dance in general, because like a, a really good dancer starting in childhood modifies their body in such a way that it's physiologically different. Yeah. Mm, well, I think, I think anything, any narrative about dance very much makes that concrete. Like there is mm -hmm. damage. You can see right. the damage. You can yeah. feel the damage. But I think what Alex was referring to here is that trope made internal. Right. <laughs> this idea right. that to, to be a great musician, to be a great composer, to you be have a great to be artist, mad or suffering. Yeah. It, ha it has yeah. to have a toll on your brain somehow. Yeah. And like when I see it with writers, the, the way that I see it is mostly like, oh yes, the starving, the starving writer living in a garret and um, <laughs> like wearing a ratty sweater. Gin. Drinking gin, right. Um, Why are we? I think, because you ask a question here, where does it come from? Why are we obsessed with yeah. it? And I wonder, it almost feels like, okay, let me ramble a little bit and then we'll see if you guys can bring me back to making sense. Okay. Um, I feel that music specifically is the genre of arts where we most want to believe that it is talent, not practice. Mm. Mm. 
it i think it feels most otherworldly as well i was about to say it feels the most ineffable yeah like it's the it's hard to explain where it comes from and it's not fucking true like i have practiced piano i practice piano 30 minutes a day from the age of six to the age of 18 that's why i can play the piano i am not a talented musician Mm. i am a skilled musician but i'm not concert skill people who are concert skill are practicing two hours a day um and that's skill not talent in fact like this is actually why i world built catalyst the way that it is with a dual magic system is because i'm so angry about so many people praising me for having a talent Mm. that was actually a skill But this is the rambling. Back to the point. Why does this connect to the art of madness and suffering? I think that we believe that these gifts from nowhere Mm. must have a price. Mm. Mm. And so a musician who has this ineffable gift, as you say, Freya, that we most want to believe just sprang from nowhere, was just divinely whatevered, we believe there must be suffering to pay for it. Mm. because anything else just feels too unfair and narratives like mozart's are where this comes from like mozart Mm -hmm. wrote twinkle twinkle little star at the age of five wrote a symphony at the age of eight was touring europe you know clearly there is some element of inbuilt talent there and it might just be a very very good ear well but no but mozart was fucking paulini not the 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 verb you want to try you want to try rephrasing that that again (laughs) mozart was christopher paulini so christopher paulini Fine writer. First novel published at 18. Why? Because of his family situation. Mm, but this is where yes. but these narratives come of like prodigy. Yes. We like that story. Right. Prodigy. It's marketing. It's marketing. Mm. It's, it is. You're exactly right, Alex. It's marketing. So I wonder if that's part of it. And like we get this with painters too. Van Gogh, I feel, is like the single individual with this narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, happen- it does happen a little bit with painters as well. But it seems more rare with painters Mm -hmm. like because we can talk about for example leonardo da vinci right who was a absolute (laughs) genius right and nobody ever goes like oh yes and he was this tortured soul but we do say he's mad well sure but that was more but like a different kind of a different kind of mad more because like his brain worked in such like a a fascinating interesting way not so much the kind of mad that was like self-destructive yeah Yeah, and so, like, I was thinking about this a lot in college. Like, I had this whole epiphany um, when I was lying. I I went to visit a friend of mine, and she put me on an air mattress in the the living room to sleep. And it was a very very leaky air mattress. And so, like, after an hour or so... slowly descended. Yeah, it slowly descended. After an hour or so, I would wake up lying flat on the floor. And during one of these lying flat on the floor sessions in the dark, I was thinking about, like, being a, a, a writer and how there's this sort of cultural expectation that it will be hard and it will hurt you and that you have mm. to pay a cost for your art and you were thinking and i was I'd like, like to be a writer who has a mattress a real mattress i would like i would love to be a writer who has a mattress yes and i would love to be a writer for i would love to be someone whose art saves their soul and i was thinking like scheherazade and that's how i came to like mm. how i wanted to be a storyteller not a writer and that after that mm-hmm. was when I started writing the chant books. Well, that's a lot more lofty than ah. my theory of I want to be able to afford a real mattress. <laughs> living living <laughs> in a garret is not for me. Well, but that is Speaking well. of storytelling. Mm. Yes. Good, good transition, Macy. Very good. Thank you. Um, one of the episodes that we had not a million years ago was an episode on bards. So why, yes. dear serpents, why is music not the episode on bards. You're right. I, I, I thought of this as well. I was like, this could be a garbage bard, but he's not. He's not. Music without words and what bards do, yeah. I think are, they're, they're, they interact, they're connected, but they're also <laughs> different. Yes. Because music without words or music with words like a lot of opera that you're not expected to be understanding as mm. words mm. Um, does still tell a story. Right. Um, yeah. Music transcends language. It doesn't always transcend cultural reference, right? Because the ways that we understand Western ideals of, of major and minor keys and what those imply, a lot of that is taught, not all of it. Like if you're having somebody play music with fast paced notes, pretty much anyone from any culture is going to experience that as being like exciting, like moving rather yeah. than something slower. But, I was going to say, for me, it feels like it's halfway between a language that you learn, which is what like music theory, mm. music appreciation, you, it can be taught, 
Uh, and clearly, right. you know, Macy has a better grounding in this particular language than myself or Alex. Sometimes Macy, sometimes Macy locks you in her car on the way to the airport <laughs> and narrates Tch- Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. But it's it's halfway between that and visual art, where you can right. five different people can see something and get something totally different yes, out exactly of it. Yes, exactly that. So you can actually yep. five different people can hear a piece of music without words or with you know incomprehensible words and feel something different or get something different out of it. Mm. And that it's not entirely the same because you probably do have the intention of the composer to produce a particular emotional state, but it may not be as universal as they're aiming for. But there was something super fascinating in the Shostakovich book uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode where he writes a piece that comes across to the peasants and the people of the of the city and the factories as slightly mocking and subversive, but comes across as nationalistic to the leadership mm, right fancy and so you can say the same right and you can kind of say different things to people with different contexts and i sometimes think about you know all of the things that i miss when i listen to hamilton because i don't have the background in what it's referencing mm, yeah right so you speak in different ways to different people okay my question that i posed was if a musician character is not a bard what other character archetypes can a musician serve in a story i I have a taxonomy that I think is like one useful way to think about it, particularly for a narrative, which is that there is a big difference between the musician who's there to be stared at Mm. and the musicians who are not. Uh, So the soloist at the front of the orchestra or um, the fascinating example from Bandom of uh, Fallout Boy, where their singer is not the front man, but the guitarist is the front man who's there to be stared at, Mm. uh, right? Um, and I think that that is a different personality type. And the fascinating thing in Light from Uncommon Stars is that Katrina doesn't want to be looked at, but her yeah. position, like the type of music, the type of musician that she is, a soloist, means that she doesn't have a choice. Mm. Right. She would probably rather be the backing player, like as a social position, but that's not the music she creates. And something that just now occurred to me about the musicians versus bards thing because I felt like I felt like I hadn't quite gotten an answer about why is a musician not a bard and I think that it's kind of similar to the writer versus storyteller divide because the bards are more like it's more of a folk thing it's more of a like a common kind of who you're reaching out to and musicians are more elevated and there's more prestige around them and they're also more like set in one place whereas bards you expect to sort of go out into the world yes macy i've had a horrible horrible metaphor realization okay it's 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 catholicism versus the baptists um and i will explain Uh, architecturally it's the architecture of catholicism versus the architecture of a baptist okay that makes sense um (laughs) thank you freya thank you I'm not sure I quite get it. Please go a little bit further. It's the amount of gilding. Well, also, but no, not just that. It's um, liturgically speaking, um, it is required that in a Catholic church oh, I see. of reasonable mm. ceremony, there is a barrier between the laity and the clergy. Yes, and I see what you mean. in the Baptist tradition, there is not. There is interaction. I yes, argue yes, that yes, the bard yes, yes. is there for interaction and mutualism. Yes. And a musician is performing across a gap. Yes, yes, you're absolutely mm. right. Yes, I am now with you. Yes. I was like, yep. where are you going with this? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But I would say that you could also have a character who is not a performer, but for whom music is a treasured hobby. Yes. Mm. To an extent that it is part of how they think of themselves, but it yes. might be something they only do for themselves. Yeah. I think you can still have that kind of character. Yes, like, yes, yes. Like Macy yeah. with her harp that she cannot play. You're learning. You're learning. Hmm. But anyway, we can go back to the taxonomy. Did we finish the taxonomy? Well, I think that that's one dimension of it. I think another one with musicians is that the choice of instrument says a huge amount, narratively speaking. Mm. What mm. does what does harp say about a, a character? Uh, harp says that they're hippy-dippy. Um, okay. Which is not really me. For me, harp says I have chronic RSI and can't hold a guitar. Sure. That's why I have a harp. Um, mm. But like, and I am not a character. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like the reason I played Euphonium was because they put all of the most musically gifted people and by gifted in, in quotation marks, it was they tested the entire year on basic musicality, picked the top 25, put us in a room with a lot of instruments 
and it was me and one other girl who got a sound out of the euphonium. So they said, congratulations, you are now carrying around a very so, heavy brass instrument for two years. Sit, sitting sitting here as a horrible orchestra kid who spent far too long in far too many instruments, Freya is a born flautist. Yes. Ah, Alex, interesting. mandolin or some such. I, well, yeah, I do play guitar a little bit. But I feel like like a cool weird I feel like this is astrology this yes. is kind of astrology <laughs> this is like the equivalent to you being like you're a Pisces it's like mm, no but like Freya's a born Freya's a born flautist <laughs> yeah yeah I would agree with that I would agree with that I think you that could I would be, be oboe if you felt like being edgy well okay. I mean I also have these enormous hands right which so you're very you could, jealous of you could be double bass I could see you as a double bass actually Ooh, that would yeah. be cool because you're tall mm. so you wouldn't I look am tall. stupid I am tall. I think tiny people of... playing double bass are very funny. <laughs> well, I mean, when I when it's I they first put the euphonium on my lap, oh, the mouthpiece <laughs> came up to my forehead, and they had to be like, "Oh, this tiny girl, she can make a sound, but she can't physically play it." So they got me a baritone, which is like a euphonium yep, that's been yep. shrunk by fifty percent, <laughs> and I had to play that in year five until I grew enough to have a proper euphonium in year six. Adorable. Anyway, in the last few minutes, I wanted to move us on to some discussion of use of music in science fiction and fantasy a little more generally. Um, So I was trying to think of books that use music as the basis for a system of magic. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure there are quite a few. And I can think of a couple of YA titles that I've heard about but haven't read. Mm -hmm. But the one that first came to mind for me was the Crystal Singer books. Yes, Yes. Yes. Which I read in primary school, I'm pretty sure, and loved the hell out of because they had a very trashy romance in them. Not only music as magic, I mean, science fiction magic because it's McCaffrey, um, but perfect pitch as a magical power. Yeah. Mm. Because again, that's the one that feels really ineffable. Like you can't actually be, you can be taught good pitch. Mm. But you can't be taught perfect But you can't be taught having perfect pitch. Mm. Right, right. Uh, there was also kind of a, it was kind of ambiguous, but in Space Opera by Cat Valente, there was a scene towards the end, which they sort of invoke music to like do some like powerful, like sci-fi bullshit, um, which was very well, cool. And Pratchett, as Freya was saying earlier, particularly in soul music, um, uses, doesn't precisely use music itself as a source of magic, but uses his standard belief magic as engineered by the music right Mm. Um, well this one this is one where it is actually external so soul music is music exists but there is this one particular type this idea of what is rock and roll um of a type of music that is a power or a god almost Mm. which escapes into the disc world but it's come from somewhere else and the implication is it is from our world and it has accidentally slipped uh, into a parallel universe which is the Discworld mm. and because the Discworld has that belief system of anything that can be paid attention to by people can rocket itself up into a godlike right, magical right. power and it's about the influence of music on a society and it's very it's making so many statements about things like Beatlemania and yes. you know the power of a rock concept to move people in a particular way I caught two new jokes when I reread it this time oh did you <laughs> which ones yeah Oh, I'm trying to remember. I think one of them was well, one of them was the Deaf Leopard one, which I had not hey. caught before. Um, <laughs> and one of them was, I think, that oh, it was a reference to the Velvet Underground. It was like something like every time I've read it, I've, I've heard of a couple more classic rock yeah. bands. Yeah. <laughs> and so I suddenly start catching more references. That's wonderful. Uh, so good. And I want to say the Isavalta series was another that had a portal fantasy one of the really cool portal fantasies, because it's from a historical period in our world to a Russian folklore-inspired royal court with high fantasy song magic. Hmm. So I'm down trying to think about fairy tales where music is important. Obviously, The Little Mermaid mm. um, is an important one because it's the idea of this beautiful singing voice as being you know, someone's soul almost or someone's main method of communication is the beauty of her voice, mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. And especially in singing. And, oh, is it the Goose Girl has the thing with the magic harp, or is that might be just no, Jack and the Bonnie Beanstalk? No, Bonnie Swans. Um, Bonnie Swans. And Jack Bonnie and the Beanstalk, Swans. there's like a magic harp and things like that. Mm. Like harps, I think harps are not necessarily a character choice, but they are very classic as an archetypal magical object in right. and of themselves. And 
one of the things when I put that I had rendered a harp up on Twitter, uh, a friend Marissa made a joke oh, immediately right. no. saying, Has anyone seen I am your now sister? concerned for the health of your sister. <laughs> because, uh, of course, the, the, the myth of the Bonnie Swans is that a sister pushes her little sister to drown in a river because she's courting the same man as the older sister and the bones of the girl are pulled out and turned into a harp which tells the story to the girl's father and gets the older sister killed so yes. everyone's dead and everything's fine because that's and if you how want folklore. to read that one in recently released book form i recommend oh. a sister song by lucy holland oh i should i love that song it's a great it's, it's basically song. bonnie swans meets hild like it's early medieval english history Wow. meets bonnie swans that's, you'll love it that's your shit macy yeah that's my shit that's <laughs> yeah. my shit does it have weird mushroom it? stuff in it for <laughs> i can't remember but there's definitely the that's I, I i talked to you that you would both really like this because it also has heroes gamos mm. like the relationship mm. between the king and the land is yeah, broken yeah. stuff yeah mm. yeah i see i see very wonderful. important wonderful yeah and it has want... like one of the three sisters is actually a trans man as well it's really good yeah. I did want, before we entirely ended, because I think we've covered a little bit of, of this already, yeah. to talk briefly about film music. Okay. Because I feel like a lot of people find quote-unquote classical music to kind of be alienating. Mm. I guess that's a fair thing to say. Like, there's just so much, and it's hard to feel like you know where to start, and it's hard to figure out that song that I heard that goes da 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 dum. Yeah, and that? it has it has all that propaganda of like prestige around it, where right. like, oh yes, mm. this is fancy music for fancy people, and you have to be smart to understand it. That is very alienating. It is, mm. and I'm just and like, it, it carries class markers like yep. opera, yes. especially. Yes, yes, yes. And it's so funny because a lot of it is just like. This is some overworked dude who was being bullied by his boss who just fired something out really quickly. And now it, this is Bach, right? Yeah. And now it's prestige. But um, there is, in the colloquial meaning of the word classical, I see no difference between that and, you know, the Harry Potter film score. Yeah, yeah. Or the music, the music that Ramin Djawadi does for things like Game of Thrones yes. or for Westworld. Yes, yes, absolutely. I agree. And I love that stuff. I think it's super cool. Um, and I just wish that, you know, you can go listen to just albums of that. And it's amazing. But it's also like, I feel like it's, it's the equivalent of the having a rich patron for mm. today's classical yeah, music, for classical is. composers. Because it's very hard for a classical composer to make a living if you're just relying on like choral, you know, choristers commissioning something from oh. you for the opening of a church or something. There's Whereas no money. There's no money. No, no. There's no Whereas money. Film, Zero film dollars. Studios, <laughs> that's where the money is. Well, I was lucky enough uh, in Dublin Worldcon to go on, to be on a panel about music in genre with a composer for oh. TV. Uh, and one of the things that he said that was very frustrating is like directors come in having shot a scene and only then start telling you to do the music and they already have had a backing track on that the whole time. And so they will come to you and say, like this, but different. Uh, <laughs> Whereas one of my favorite musical experiences I've ever had was going to one of the Sydney Opera House's mm. Lord of the Rings oh, wow. performances where they show the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah with the orchestra. Um, and then they have the orchestra playing the music live. That's so and cool. I, did, I went and saw the Two Towers one of that in the Sydney Opera House's main auditorium. Because it was incredible. If you ever do an experiment, dear listeners, next time you're watching um, a horror movie or something with deep suspense, put it on mute yeah. for a bit. And see how much less affecting and less scary it is without the soundtrack. Without the screechy mm. violins in the background yeah. putting the well, hairs up on like the back that, of your neck. Like yeah. a held tone. Yeah. Can be very, very... This is yep. why I don't watch horror movies. Because yep. I am very easily manipulated by soundtracks. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas books, I have never read a book that gave me nightmares. A lot I had right. to put down because right. so it was too scary. Because I was like, eh, there's no music. This is fine. This is fine. <laughs> It is. I watch them on mute. It's easier. Well, with that cool life hack, I think that we shall call it the end of the episode. Uh, yes. Dear listeners, you may now give us your standing ovation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Music means an unspeakably large amount 
to me. And after these last few years, listeners, I think perhaps that you know that. Uh, music peeks out from the scenery of movies and TV. It soothes or entices or threatens us. It gives us space to mourn. And the act of creating music is simultaneously something intensely personal, intensely intimate, and a gift that we give to others. I'm not sure I'd still be here today if I didn't have my piano, my songs, my gremlin orchestral clarinet buddies over the years. And I'm so delighted we found these wonderful tent poles to share with you today. We have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on November 3rd, we'll be discussing ghosts. That's right, it's the Halloween episode. If you want to prepare in advance, one of our tent poles is Aidan Thomas's book, Cemetery Boys. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, and if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And don't forget to send in your extravaganza questions. Oh, and by the way, do you play an instrument? You should. I bet it'd sound beautiful, your music.